Well, as I said, this morning we arrive at the end of our sermon series through the book of Daniel. I've really enjoyed going through this book with you guys over the past couple months uh, for a lot of reasons. It's a book with some of the most epic stories in the Bible. I mean, you've got Daniel in the lion's den. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting launched into a fiery furnace. And then there's a fourth mysterious person who's in there, and they walk right out untouched. You've got a disembodied hand writing messages to a foreign king on a wall. I mean, this is like the made-for-Hollywood book of the Bible, okay? But even more than that, Daniel is a book that feels very ancient and feels very modern all at the same time. You see, it was written 2,600 years ago in Babylon, on the other side of the world, in some ways as far from us culturally as you can get um, anything written in the world. But once we start to peel back the surface and we start to see what this book is truly about, It turns out to be one of the most applicable, modern, uh, relevant books in the entire Bible. It's about a small group of people fighting to follow God in a foreign land. It's about how to trust the promises of the gospel when all the cultural and social and religious gravity seems to be pulling you in exactly the opposite direction. It's about how to cultivate habits of dependence and repentance and prayer and trust in the God who controls all of history exactly when history seems to be spinning out of control. It's about not only how to remain obedient and true to God in this life, uh, in a spiritually distracted and chaotic world, it's actually about how to begin to engage those who believe very different things than we do. It's about how to make the gospel compelling to other people uh, by our lifestyle and by our love and and about how to invest in the place that God has placed us and to work and to pray for its good. In other words, this is a field guide to following Jesus in our modern world. In some ways, you couldn't get a more relevant book for trying to follow Jesus in the Roaring Fork Valley on the western slope of Colorado in the year 2019. But maybe the one word that sums up the book of Daniel is one we haven't actually zeroed in on yet until today. And that word showed up a few times in this last chapter, and that word is wisdom. Okay? We read in, verse 12, or in chapter 12, verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And that is a great verse, okay? That's like one of those write it on a note cards and pin it on your wall sorts of verses. It's just lovely. Um, And maybe the summarize, the best way to summarize Daniel's life after 80 years of living in exile under three different kings and two different regimes um, with endless pressures to turn from God yet remaining faithful to him, savvy, Innocent, yet shrewd, dependent, courageous, all at once. Maybe the word that best summarizes Daniel's life is wisdom. He was a wise man. He shone in a dark place like the brightness of the sky above and and like stars forever and ever. Daniel exemplified true godly wisdom. What about you? Are you a wise person? If you are, what makes you wise? Do you know wise people? Or what are they like? Uh, wh- like what sorts of characteristics, what sorts of qualities, what sorts of habits um, display wisdom in today's world? What does it look like to be wise today? What do wise people do? 
What do wise people say? What does it look like to be wise in our world? We all want more of it, I assume. I mean, I'd love to be a wiser person. I pray for wisdom that I haven't earned and don't deserve all the time, right? I, I wish I had more of it. Um, but what does it mean exactly to be wise? Well, as a capstone to this great book, Daniel 12 shows us the path to true wisdom, okay? Our text this morning breaks down basically into two parts. Verses 1 through 3 are the closing lines of a long vision that's been going on since chapter 10. And then verses 14 through 13 end the book on a kind of curious, head-scratching sort of note, okay? And uh, we could label these two parts resurrection and wisdom. And when you figure out the connection between these two parts, I don't want to oversell this, but you basically get the secret to life, okay? Uh, I know that's a strong claim, but hear me out. And plus, that's a pretty good hook to get your attention. So, part one, the facts of the future resurrection. Look again with me at verse two. In this vision, Daniel hears, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and to everlasting contempt. Now, to anyone who's ever been to church, uh, assuming you've been to at least one Easter service in your entire life, this verse is not brand new to you, okay? This is not shocking, uh, breaking news. Of course, those who sleep will awake. This is what Christianity is all about, isn't it? The promise held out of resurrection life with Jesus into eternity. Anyone who's been to an Easter service has heard this. It is gifted to anyone who trusts in Jesus as a gift of love. But to understand the shock value of this verse at this time in history, you kind of got to understand how God works, how he reveals himself to his people over time. So, for example, before Jesus came to the earth and God was revealing himself in the Old Testament to his people, he said a lot of true things about himself and about his plan for the world. But he didn't say everything about himself or everything about his plan for the world. And so, for example, early in the Old, Old Testament, God made it really, really clear that there's just one of him, right? I am the Lord, I am your God, and I am one. There's one God. So don't go out there flirting with all the other little gods that claim to be gods. They're not real. I'm the one, and you worship me alone. And that's kind of the thing he drilled into his people's head for thousands of years. And there were hints here and there that there was other stuff going on. But it really wasn't until the New Testament that we see God is still one, but he's a complex unity. He's a trinity. He's a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. So he said true things about himself, but then he revealed more about himself as he went on. And he does the same thing with his plan and his future plan for his people uh, and, and the promise of resurrection life. So God shows his followers in the Old Testament that there was some sort of existence after death, but there's only hints here and there about what it might be. And then in the New Testament, he really starts to unpack it and show us, okay, what, wait, we're going to be alive in physical bodies with God forever, except for one place in the entire Old Testament, we, and that's right here in Daniel 12. This is the single clearest explanation in the Old Testament about the future life that believers have with their God, about resurrection life, and it's here in Daniel Chapter 12, verse 2. This is a shocking verse for the first people that would have read it. The first time that God tells human beings that once we die, we don't say, stay dead. 
Okay, this is the first time that announcement has been made. This is a bombshell. Now, we have kind of grown up hearing this, if you've been around church at all, um, but the, imagine hearing this news for the very first time. Imagine that you were one of those Old Testament believers and you came across Daniel 12 too, and then that was it. That's all you had to go on for the next, I don't know, let's say five, 600 years until Jesus showed up to start to explain more and color in the picture about what this means. Imagine you were one of the millions of people in that time trying to follow God and this is all you had to go on about your future life with Jesus. What would you think? I mean, what would you imagine your life was like if this is all you had to go on? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It leaves so much um, unknowable. It leaves so much mysterious, right? Now, we, of course, on this side of the New Testament, have many more questions answered, but we still have a lot of questions, don't we? I mean, what's this whole resurrection thing about? What's our future in heaven, eternity with God? What are we going to do? I mean, that's a long time. What are we going to do in heaven for eternity? Uh, There's a lot we don't know, but there's a lot we know. Listen to some of the things we learn. Here's from Jesus. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus tells us the future of every single person who's ever lived. Tells us your future. Here's your future, okay? Your body, your hair, your arms, your legs, the scar that you had from your appendectomy when you were in 11th grade, all of that stuff will be raised up after death and and will be rejoined with your soul and your mind to make a new you. It'll be the same you, but it'll be a remade you, a re-knit you, okay? You were not designed to live forever as a disembodied spirit in heaven. That's not the ultimate human destiny, okay? There are no clouds. There may be harps, we don't know, but you're not on a cloud in heaven forever. You're an embodied, physical, real-world existence with Jesus. That's what awaits you in your body. Paul unpacks this even further for us in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, for the perishable must put on the imperishable. This is fascinating. He talks about our resurrection bodies almost like new new clothes that we get dressed in. The mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? From Daniel to Jesus to Paul, the whole Bible is telling you your certain future with Jesus. Here it is. You will one day die. I'm sorry, you heard it here first, but you will. But after your death, on the day that Jesus returns to this world, you'll be raised again. You'll re-inherit your body. 
Imagine what that'll feel like. You think getting over the flu feels good? Like when you get out of bed healthy? Imagine putting your body back on, okay? Except it's not even the same one. It's the same one, but it's even greater. There's continuity between your character now, your personality now, your, your characteristics now, and, and what you will have into eternity. But there's also discontinuity. It's a body that'll never get sick. It, it's a world that will never be broken. It's a world that sin doesn't even have a foothold in. And so all of the frustrations and the brokenness that we deal with now living in a sin-filled world, they don't exist. We'll never have FOMO again because there won't be anything to miss out on, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll have all the time in the world to enjoy every one of the gifts that God has ever poured into his creation. And we'll do it into eternity. We'll do it into eternity. In the resurrection... God will deliver you through the fear, the pain, and the uncertainty of death, and you'll walk out the other side unable to die, imperishable, perfect, immortal. It's an incredible claim. And as they say, incredible claims better be backed up by incredible evidence, right? So, so what's, what's the evidence? What's the proof that we, have, that we have to go on, that any of this is real, and it's not just smoke, it's not just vapor, empty hopes. Well, the proof the Bible offers is this. It already happened one time, okay? This life already exists in the universe. There was one man, Jesus, who experienced the full weight of the fear and the pain and the finality of death. He died on the cross for us in our place, and three days later, his father raised him up to this new kind of resurrection life that we're talking about. And his life is a prototype for our life. You will be like him if you're united to him now. What happened to him will happen to you if you trust he's the king, if you trust he's your savior, if you trust that he holds your future in his powerful and good hands. His resurrection life will be your resurrection life. And if this is true, if the first proclamation of it in Daniel 12 and the later unpacking of it in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, if this is true, it's literally the most important fact in the world, right? I mean, it reshapes and reorients everything about our lives. This is the ultimate hope. This also would have been an amazing place to end the book of Daniel. Okay, look at this. If you look at verse 2 and 3 together, um, that's probably when he should have stopped writing. It's when I would have stopped writing. Um, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> wait, 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 I didn't mean that. Um, it's when I would have stopped writing, okay? Look at this. Verse 2, the clearest articulation of resurrection life in the entire Old Testament. Then verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever boom. Like, just drop the mic right there and walk off the stage. That is an amazing ending to an amazing book, isn't it? And yet, Daniel goes on and almost rambles for another 10 verses about weird stuff that we don't understand. Why? Why did he do that? Why end on such a strange, head-scratching kind of note? Here's why. Every place in the Bible that talks about the resurrection— or, or the future hope for believers, or heaven, or, or future peace, it always does it with the aim of showing us how that certain future begins to seep in and invade and apply to our present life as well. 
If we've learned anything about the book of Daniel over these past weeks, it's that the Bible is not just a guidebook for getting out of this world and getting into heaven. The Bible is a guidebook about how to get into this world in humble and loving and compelling ways to extend God's kingdom here and now. And considering how the future resurrection invades our present life is exactly how the Bible trains us to think. I mean, the longest chapter in the entire Bible on the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul spends 57 verses talking about, we just read from it a minute ago, he spends 57 verses talking about what it's going to be like and why we believe it and the historical facts about it and why we can trust it. And then he gets to the very end and the closing verse, verse 58, is this, Therefore, okay, because of all of that resurrection hope and fact and historical truth, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see what Paul did? He applied all of that future hope, and he said, by the way, it's not just future, but it seeps back into your present, and it makes everything about your life today meaningful. Your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast today because of what is true and certain about your future. And that's how Daniel ends his book, too. After the climax of a vision of the end of all things, he shows us that those future facts seep back into the present world and change our lives today. How does the future resurrection inform our lives today? Well, the short answer is it makes us wise, okay? It gives us wisdom. Uh, Here's where we begin to see the Bible's perspective on what wisdom really is. Wisdom's not the same as being smart. Uh, Smart is about information. Um, Wisdom is about how to use that information. Smart can teach you about nuclear physics. Wisdom helps you decide if you should build a bomb or a power plant with it, right? Uh, Wisdom is not exactly the same as success either, at least not as the world usually defines success, but it's certainly about living a successful life in God's kingdom according to, to the reality of his creation his calling, his identity, and his family love. Wisdom, in the Bible, it's, it's basically skill at life, okay? It's living according to the kingdom of God amidst all the kingdoms of this world. It's living as if the promises of Jesus are actually true. It's an art because it's not a set of rules and procedures to follow. Not all of this stuff is written down for us. Wisdom's an art, but specifically, it's the art of living in God's world as if everything he tells us in the Bible is true, and especially as if our future resurrection is true, okay? At this point, oh, and the point of Daniel 12, this this closing and climactic chapter to the entire field guide that Daniel wrote for people trying to follow Jesus in this world, with all its pressures and difficulties and anxieties and disappointments, is that if you're your future resurrection is a fact in Jesus. And everyone who knows that and believes that and lives now as if that's true, those are the wise, okay? If you want to be wise, grow in your trust of the resurrection. How do we live with resurrection wisdom before we even get there? 
Verse 13, the last verse in Daniel, is almost a summary of how to do this. It's a summary of the wise life. Uh, God says, go your way until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of these days. Because the resurrection's true, in other words, go your way until the end. Our future identity is the truest thing about us. Who we are as eternal, glorified, embodied, Christ-like images of God in the future, that's our truest self. And today, God is helping us grow into who we will be forever. And so God's basically saying to Daniel, go that way, right? Go towards resurrection life, even though we haven't fully inhabited it yet. One pastor I read on this chapter said, if this chapter teaches anything, it's that because God's people will be different then, we need to be different now. And and indeed, that's the challenge of this entire book. Uh, Think here, this is somewhat like um, a film preview, you know, the the two-minute snapshot that gets you excited about the full-feature film coming down the road. That is what Christians are called to be in this world. We're the film preview of the full kingdom that is going to arrive, the full feature that will be here soon. But for now, all we get is to give is a little taste, a little, a little uh, kind of character expose, a little plot line of the full thing that's going to come. We get to give people a taste of the future kingdom. This is a calling to change how we think about investing our time, our work, our play, our money now, so that we're witnesses to the future truth. Um, Here's another uh, pastor writing on this topic. According to a guy named Lewis Smedes, hoping for others is hard, but it's not the hardest thing that you do as a Christian. Praying for others is hard, but it's not the hardest thing either. The hardest task for people who believe in the second coming of Christ is in living the sort of life that makes people say today, oh, so that's how people are going to live when the full kingdom arrives in its glory. See, of course, one of the most practical places this hits the ground for you and me every day is how we treat other people, how we talk to other people. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no ordinary people. Okay, you've never run into a mere mortal. Uh, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, universities, these are mortal, and their life compared to ours is like the, the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, it's immortals who we work with and marry and snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You have never met a normal person. See, the resurrection begins to seep back into our present life, and it can change the way we look at each other and treat each other. And a life of wisdom towards others means a number of things. It means living as if the promises of God are true. It means that there are really, truly no lost causes, okay? Anybody, anybody can be reached by the interrupting grace of God coming into their lives. It means everything is redeemable. Even the worst relationships, the most broken families, the hardest marriages, the darkest tragedies of our world are not out of God's reach if the resurrection is true. He can and will make all things new. So go your way until the end. Go the resurrection way for the rest of your life. Be a film preview of what God has in store, the full feature, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place 
at the end of days. If the resurrection's true, it also gives us rest. It gives us security. It gives us rest from the fear and the sting and the victory of death, like we read earlier. You will find rest. There was an old pastor named Donald Barnhouse who was a preacher in Philadelphia in the last century. And he actually lost his wife to cancer far too early. And he was walking home, the story goes, he was walking home from the funeral with his small kids at that time. And uh, they, you know, they were all a little bit out of it. And one of them kind of stepped into the street and didn't see a truck coming. And he pulled his girl back real fast and, and the truck missed her. And he leaned down and quietly said, um, honey, that was scary, wasn't it? And she said, yeah. And he said, um, but it's much better to get hit by the shadow of that truck than by the truck, wasn't it? And she said, yes, that was much better to get hit by the shadow than the actual truck. And he said, you know what? That's exactly what just happened to mom. Uh, she, was, she was hit by the shadow of death, but she walked right out the other side into glory and into resurrection life forever with Jesus. And the reason that she was able to take the shadow of death and not the full death that awaited her was because Jesus took that in our place. See, Jesus took the hit of sin and evil and death and brokenness of the world so that we would never have to experience ultimate death. Instead, we go through the shadow of death and we come right out the other side. And that is the deep soul rest that's available for us because the resurrection's true. And it seeps back into our life even now because of the promises that Jesus has offered us. If you want to be wise, if you want to raise wise kids, if you want to invest in a wise marriage, if you want to mentor younger people into wisdom, the only way to grow into wisdom in this world is to grow in our amazement and our trust and our delight of all of the promises that God has given us through Christ, and especially resurrection life. It's the, it's the promise that's available to you today to receive it and to enjoy it, to share it, to embody it. Take his gifts, grow in his wisdom, and go your way. Go your way towards resurrection life and be a light to those around you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this great, great book of the Bible. Thank you for Daniel and all that he went through and experienced so that he could be a guide for us as we go through and experience very similar things. Um, we do pray that you would grow our hearts to trust and delight in all that you have won for us in your cross and your resurrection. Thank you um, for securing those gifts um, and thank you for offering them to us by grace for free. Help us receive them. Help us look to our certain future in you and trust in resurrection life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.